When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, and welcome to the 67th episode of Lake of Rage, a Pokemon trading card game podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kevin Clementi, a.k.a. Mellow underscore Magikarp. I'm joined today by two very special temporary guest hosts. Joining us for the second time, I believe. I think so. We have the one, the only, Rahul Reddy. What's up, guys? How are you doing? <clears throat> and joining us for the first time, we have Xander Perot. Hi everybody, I'm Xander. I've been playing the game since 2009, around December, back when I was in the junior division. Uh, since then, I've done pretty well for myself. Uh, I won the nationals in junior division, uh, but most importantly in masters, I've uh, won three regionals and then also finished third at the world championships in 2017. Let's go. So this is an exciting episode. We have two of just the top players in the game. We're going to talk a lot about testing, how to find a testing group, what it actually looks like to test with a group, and then how to actually agree on a deck before an event. So that's kind of our major outline because as a full disclosure, this is something I've always struggled with as a player. I've never same 60 with anyone because I can never agree with anything on that. I've tested with people before, but it's never lasted more than a couple of like sessions because as a whole, it's just like, it's, you know, scheduling is so difficult actually driving to places is difficult, all that other stuff. So I'm excited for this episode because I'm hoping to learn a lot and I'm hoping that you all can learn a ton as well. So first and foremost, I think the biggest question, cause I know we have a lot of listeners who are either newer players or they join in the pandemic and obviously in a pandemic, there's no Pokemon league. There's no, this is all kind of a new thing. How do you actually go about finding a group to test with? How do you find these people? Where are you finding them? You know, all this other stuff. How do you link up? I don't know if either of you can offer any advice on those things. And uh, if anyone wants to jump in first on that one. Uh, I think uh, primarily like league not being a thing right now is one of the biggest issues because a lot of us have met through either local level events or something a little bit bigger. And either we've become friends or something of sort of familiarity so if you're a newer player one of the biggest things is like don't be afraid to like reach out to those guys who are you're playing like don't be afraid to ask questions at the guys you see locally every week or at your weeklies or whatever you know like i think that's the best way to just even break that ground make a friendship uh outside of just like team like outside of going in and being like i want to be working with you or whatever just in general like being a friend and just being like hey i see you every week like let's interact at a basic human level um like that's like the like the most basic thing that you can start to build up that uh building block to eventually working together out of mutual respect yeah i agree with rahul here where honestly for me personally when i first started playing uh the first people i worked with were just the people i saw at locals and so now that we don't have that anymore uh hopefully that'll be coming back soon uh but like rahul said i would say the best way is to just get to know people, not necessarily uh, jump right in saying, hey, let's form a team or w collaborate and stuff. Just the more you talk to people, the more you get to know them, they get to know you, then you'll sort mm -hmm. of bond and just enjoy spending time with them and talking about Pokemon. And then in terms of no locals for now, uh, I know there are a lot of Facebook groups that are 
like specific for like I know there's a Chicagoland Pokemon group. I know there's stuff on like North Carolina. So I would say reach out to somebody you know or like post in like Verbanker on Twitter and see what uh, resources people have. Yeah, I do want to say if you go out there searching, you'll probably find something that exists like the yeah. Pacific Northwest, for example, the Seattle area, the Seattle, Tacoma, Kirkland, etc. There is a discord server for the area. And I know Oregon mm. has their own discord server where you can find link up with people. And I only know the West Coast because that's where I live. But I'm going to assume that if you search out this kind of stuff or ask around or even if you see on Twitter, someone who lives in your area, ask them if they know of any resources or anything like that. And I assume... Like I said, just about every area probably has somewhere. Yeah. yeah, like even like for example, I tweeted this weekend that I'm headed to a case tournament, and I had a couple of locals even like message me like, "Hey, I didn't even know this existed." And I was like, "Well, here's the Facebook page, like just for future, like these guys only post on Facebook, like no other socials, like uh, heads up." And so now that's one more store that people will be keeping an eye out for. Just si similar stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know about YouTube, but I've had to keep up. I had to get into Discord and Twitter because of Pokemon, and I've had to maintain my Facebook because of Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, my Facebook would be log god. <laughs> it's definitely one of those necessary evils of how to communicate with people. Yeah. So I want to ask a question then about your testing group. How did you all meet and come to like join together on this one? Um, or is, or is this no off. leaks? Am I not allowed to know this one? No, no, no. no. Who can take this? It's it's pretty funny. Um, so over the years, we've all like I think the kickoff of the modern era, where like sixteen, seventeen season happened, was the first time that like testing groups of this nature kind of like began began to establish themselves. Like we're now branching outside of our local regions. Like we have multiple regionals across the season that we attend. So uh, in, in that era, uh, sixteen, seventeen, Xander, myself, and Sam Chen were all really good. So we all had, like, a very healthy rivalry going, which then transformed into, like, we already hang out a bunch. Like, why don't we just work together? Because at that point, other teams, like, Azul had his group. Um, I think Pablo had his group. Like, Prant, like everyone started, like, having their own little groups. Um, because we were like, we all travel all the time. Like, why don't we just, like, start rooming together? And that became teaming. So me, Sam, and Xander had agreed coming back into the season that we'd work together. Um, I think, like, maybe, like, a month or two out, we, like, made a Facebook group chat. And we were like, hey... Like, I know we're coming back. I don't know to what capacity we'll all be playing, but, like, at the very least, I think we should talk. Like, we should make sure, like, we keep our communication. We know what we're up to. Um, and then we went to Salt Lake where – and we had Reagan with us, uh, our senior. So we ended up going to Salt Lake where uh, Isaiah had reached out to, I think, Xander um, in regards to just, like, meeting up uh, and, like, talking decks or just, like, testing. And we ended up getting lunch with Isaiah and John – who, I mean, we've been friends with them for, like, a long time, you know, like, we see each other, like, I think we all, like, enjoy each other's company, and we all got, like, a burgers, and then eventually, like, this conversation started leading into, like, Pokemon, and it was, like, I think Xander and Isaiah started, like, going back and forth about something, I don't even remember what it was. The B-Barrel! The B-Barrel, yeah, it was, like, B-Barrel versus no B-Barrel, and then we ended up walking back to the hotel lobby to start playing games, and this is so early, we couldn't even check in yet, kind of thing, uh, and so we just started playing games, and then this, like, went on for the entire event, like, the entire night, like, Friday night. And then I think Michael Slutsky and uh, we, I, was, I, was, I talked to Justin Bakari a lot anyway, so I was already like planning on working with him a little bit. Uh, and so all of this like kind of culminated and we played same 60 into the next day. And then after the event, uh, I think Isaiah just reached out and was like, do you guys just want to all work together? Like this kind of just worked out super well. So I do have to know because the B-barrel was one of the things that caught just about everyone off guard. 
Like yeah. I know I, did, I saw Rahul on day one. He told me there's playing something spicy and it was the Sydney, <laughs> which is something that I had also tested. So I was like, yeah. that's not actually that spicy. And then I saw the list of like the B barrel is kind of nuts. So Xander, were you pro B barrel or were you against the B barrel? Hey, on that Friday, Isaiah and I were just like coming up with a lot of different ideas of like how to like make Italian really good. But at the same time, we were losing to Mew. So we were just going back and forth of a bunch of different ideas. And so there was this Arceus Dark Bee Barrel deck, like super ancient version of it. Nothing like near what's been doing well recently. But basically it was just Arceus Bee Barrel, Fat Bee Barrel line with a thin Crobat line. And it did have the Sydney in there, but we were still losing to Mew, and you still just, like, don't really beat a lot of things. <laughs> and we were losing to Arceus, obviously, because, I mean, you just don't beat Arceus. And so what we ended up deciding is that, okay, what if we just uh, took that B-Barrel and then put it in Inteleon? And so that was Isaiah and I sort of, we, like, it wasn't my idea, it wasn't his idea, we just kind of collaborated on it together. Yeah. And what ended up happening is that we just took all the... Good cards, good parts of B barrel, which I guess was really just the one bit B barrel in the Sydney, and threw that in Arkantel, and then, I mean, your Mew matchup is still a flip, but it felt nice that uh, you would have access to the B barrel to draw cards, and it was also really useful against Mew because you would have that time to play Sydney, so it wasn't like you were playing Sydney and then not like drawing energies for the turn. I mean, let's be honest though, was there anything in that format where the Mew matchup wasn't just kind of a flip? Probably not at the time, honestly. <laughs> like it's really, it's really fun to look at back at like the Salt Lake decks and see how kind of ancient they are. Yeah, especially for like two weeks later. Like if you showed me our Arkansas list, I think you would, I would just call you crazy. Like relative to, to what does well now, it's like cool. I have Choice Belt Zigzagoon to one shot something, but oh, I can just play double Big Charm and double Sharon and win anyway. So there are a lot of cool things to like. I guess aside from this whole conversation, to to look back at old lists and see what's good and what's bad that is one of my favorites looking back at my list i'm like this thing was nuts i was so ahead of the meta <laughs> except no dunsparce and i look back like what why was i ever thinking that this card was not absolutely broken so i'm i'm mm. right there with you You look at these decks and you're like the early meta always feels really weird <laughs> agreed was there any uh feeling when you started out as a group of like oh, I want to work with these people, I want to chat with these people, but I also want to keep something to myself. Was there ever any like feeling of, I don't know if animosity is the right word, I'm a science teacher, not an English teacher, right? Was there ever any feeling of like, uh, maybe I don't want to give everything away, or maybe I want to keep something for myself, or maybe I want to tech for all these people because I know what everyone else is going to be playing? Or was it just an automatic of like, no, we're good, let's go in with this? Yeah, I think there was never like any like, I want to sit there and like tech for Zed or something. It was just like, I trust these guys, we're running it, like, one of us should be good enough to go deep every time. This is one of those things yeah. where, like, I know I just like I just want one of us to do well or one of us to yeah. win the event, and it's like this team feeling of accomplishment. Yeah. And like logically, I think like if we play same sixty and sit down, it should be a coin flip. I think it goes back to a lot of the the camaraderie too. Like for example, Sam Rahul and I are really close, and I've I've been close with John before, but he and I uh, didn't work as much together on decks like since i aged up to masters because he was still in seniors but back in like 2014 2015 john and i would work together on decks so that was never really like any point of conflict there obviously justin and i also good friends isaiah too so i think it really just goes to we're all really close friends none of us are trying to like screw each other over yeah. uh, and especially because uh i mean we all test together we all realize oh our same 60 the only thing would be like putting in something to directly counter ourselves, but I mean, 
don't know. You just kind of excommunicate yourself from the group at that point. So. <laughs> I guess that's a, that's a pretty good argument yeah. of like, if I do it this one time at this one tournament for probably no benefit, <laughs> I just uh, burned a lot of bridges there. Mm-hmm. So then in a group, Mm-hmm. let's say so not salt lake let's move on from the like hey this is how we formed we tested the night before etc uh let's go into i don't know indie or whatever you know one of the other regionals where you have weeks to prepare i don't know if we ever had mm-hmm. weeks to prepare you know you have a significant amount of time to repair right i think uic was the biggest gap between yeah there we go so let's go something like uic you've got a couple of weeks you've got time to go how much of a group is like theorying stuff out and just throwing ideas out there that no one's tested and coming out with this stuff. How much of it is actual practice and grinding games? How much of it is together? How much of it is separate? That's a lot of questions to throw at you at once, I know. So let's start with the just simple of like, how much is theorying of like, hey, let's throw decks out there and lists out there and do that versus how much is this, I'm just going to grind games and see what happens. Sandra, why don't you start us off? I will say, it's t- I, was, I can't really speak to EYC because I didn't end up going. Uh, for a majority of the year, I've been incredibly swamped. And also, uh, it's kind of no secret within our testing group that I don't enjoy playing Pokemon, like, to practice in terms of, like, oh, grinding for tournaments, specifically with, like, testing a bunch of different decks. But if there's a deck I really like, then I'll, I'll sit down and play games regard- like over and over again. And that's like the checkmate, the ADP Rosa, or like Dialga. So it really depends for me. But I know that with Isaiah and John, they spend a lot of time playing nonstop. Uh, usually they'll be on Discord playing for three to four hours a couple times a week. Uh, at the very least, and outside of that, they're theorying too, like kind of the more crazy ideas. So I will say... Uh, at least within our group, it's maybe 20% theory and then like 80% play. But a lot of the play then results in theory of like, okay, we have these decks. How do we want to position ourselves to beat them? Or like, what kind of ideas do we come up with because of our testing? So I was watching Omnipoke the other day and him and his testing group have a massive spreadsheet where they're tracking all of their games. And apparently they're also tracking the stuff that Ro- or Azul and Tord are streaming. Are you spreadsheet people, or are you just, I'm going to go with the vibes and see what happens type? I personally would enjoy the spreadsheet, just because, I mean, I'm a data science guy. Rahul also likes yep. data. Uh, the kiddos, not so much. They prefer <laughs> to uh, just sort of go with the gut, but their gut's right a lot of the time. Uh, the biggest thing with spreadsheets is that your data isn't always good data, and yep. that's just a fundamental problem of okay, if we're either we're playing all of these games and we can trust them like 90%, but also, I mean, I can't say that I play perfectly with every deck, so it's really hard to get good quality for uh, like matchups in that regard. Also, in terms of testing specific card counts, you don't really know how impactful they are or how subtly impactful they are. It's kind of like going back to the argument of, oh, I should have won that game because of XYZ, but you didn't win, but would that card have mattered? Or just things like that where you can't really put put things into numbers with Pokemon because of small sample sizes, because of small card count changes, and also just because of like predicting the meta is pretty hard. So I will say that there's a very valuable thing to be learned from spreadsheets, but it's kind of hard to apply it to Pokemon. 
So this is a question I've asked a handful of our guests, and I kind of want to hear both of your thoughts on this. What do you consider a good sample size for a deck? Like how many games would you say I should have or my group should have played a specific matchup or played this deck overall before you say like, yes, that is enough. That makes me feel confident in this thing. Are we talking 10, 100, 1,000? Like probably none of those numbers specifically, but. Is this with a list or with a deck specifically? Oh, that's a really good question. Let's say with an archetype as opposed to a six. So let's say it's, if it's Palkia, maybe you're like, okay, not 58 of the cards, right? As opposed yeah, to like, okay, four Arita versus four Research. I would consider those two different decks. Sure. sure. Um, I think depending on, the, like, depending on what the matchup theory is, like for example, let's say the matchup theory is we're heavily favored, then a couple games should do it. Just making sure that we're, like we haven't cut too many corners to get where we need to be. But if it's like a coin flip matchup, like for example, going into EYC, we did Urshi versus Mew. And that, that matchup, I think we played like close to a couple hundred games, like between all of us. Like um, just because like even the night before or the day before, like it was literally me against Slutsky, and I think we played like maybe 10 or 15 games. And next to me was Justin versus Isaiah playing the same matchup because that matchup was so intricate and we were trying to refine like whatever small percentage points we could drag out, we wanted to do. Because like that was the matchup we expected the most of. That was the most coin flippy matchup in our opinion. And um, we expected players to be better than they were, to be fair, um, at that event. Uh, but that is also something that we sometimes fall into the trap of. Uh, we're testing against ourselves, so... I expect everyone to play like I do, and then it's kind of a pleasant surprise when they don't. Xander, what about you? What are your numbers? I was going to say maybe 50 with the archetype overall, and then a solid 20 with the list or near-perfect list. Uh, Sort of a different approach, but similar ideas, Rahul, of, okay, you have your positive matchups, but you still sort of need to test uh, what your pitfalls would be. For example, going into NAIC, I wrote FRCS as just a complete auto-win. And for Dialga, it pretty much is an auto-win, but Marnie Path is still a problem, sort of how, okay, decks deal with Mew with Marnie Path and Roxanne Path, and sure, that's one way to beat a turbo deck some percentage of the time. So looking back, there are things that uh, you kind of do want to test your favorable matchups, but you also want to make sure you test the unfavorable ones as well. And yep. that's sort of where the 20 comes in, where with your final list, kind of like a sanity check of, are you doing well against your unfavorables, like giving yourself a chance, while also doing well against what you already expect to do well with after you've messed with the list a bit. So in terms of the matchups, like you said, you know, hundreds of games against Mew with Urshifu, which makes sense because everyone should say, oh, you never beat that matchup. And obviously that's not true. But anyway, yeah. uh, how do you decide which matchups you're going to go against? Because quickly plug my YouTube channel. Before every event, I've been putting out my expected day one meta shares and it's been going pretty well, right? But like, what do you do with that data? Even if you're like, I can predict that I'm probably going to play against two Mews in day one. Well, then how much should you be testing against Mew versus how much should you be testing against maybe something random like a Dialga that you're probably not going to hit? But also, do you test that matchup? Is it really worth it? Do you hit it on ladder occasionally and say you're fine? Like, how do you decide which matchups you're going to test against versus which ones you're going to ignore, or do you not ignore any of them? I think if you test every single matchup, it takes way too long, and you're just like wasting brain power. Um, honestly, because like a lot of them, you should have a, like you should have like a you should you'll know like a general game plan because if you understand like if you play enough of Pokemon, you'll know like what Dialga is supposed to do, what this deck is supposed to do. So you should like in your mind know if they do X, I should do Y. 
And so some of these jankier decks, like if they catch you off guard, they catch you off guard, but you should like by game two know what you're doing in a, in a general sense. Um, but you want to test, I think, like your top, like the big three to five decks, like to the ground, because if you're going to try to win the event, which is, I think, the mentality you should have going into every event, um, you should know that once you make it to day two, you'll hit less jank and more, like more Muse, for example, or more Arkantels or more Palkias. Like, like once you get into day two, you're playing these matchups and you know that. So getting through day one is a minefield anyway. So you just need to kind of know your general approach to things. You don't have to have like perfect, it perfected. But just having a general idea of what every deck kind of could do is fine. What do you say, Zane? I agree there. Where uh, you just want to know how to play your deck against the other deck on day one, especially like Reggie Gigas, Blissey Miltank, uh, Dark Bird Box. Like those are the kind of decks where you might expect to play them in the early rounds or maybe in the middle ground, like with lower probability later on. But you still want to have some idea, like some basic strategy. Just so you don't really fall into that pit trap of, okay, this is a good matchup, or it's a close matchup, but then you misplay because you didn't play a single game, or because you didn't look at what a list for that deck might look like beforehand. So, because this is like not testing thing, but I have two of the best players in the world here, so I have to ask this question. Rahul, you said, you know, something might catch you off guard, but that should only matter in game one. What are any tips that you have for your opponents playing Jank? They know the matchup. You don't know the matchup. How do you adjust your strategy after that game one to win games two and three? Like, what is your mentality? What are your thoughts? How are you actually doing this? Like, I'm assuming a lot of the time, like, if we know, like, like the, like, for example, let's, say, let's, let's take Xander's Dialga deck. Like, Xander's playing his Dialga deck. Like, you I'm expect Dialga cards. Huh? Not Jank, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> like, if he just slams a bird keeper into, like, Rowlet, I'm going to be like, okay, dude, like, you got me game one. Like, that's like an easy fix. But sometimes there's going to be like a line they take that you didn't expect because of a certain card or a certain uh, card count that they have. So, especially when I'm playing against Jank or something I'm not familiar with, um, I will be checking their discard. I will be counting cards. I will be, I will be paying attention to what they say in terms of like something. Or like, let's say they Evo Incense and fail it for something when they could have grabbed something, instant tell on what their card counts are, like that kind of stuff. Um, and that'll just give you enough information of what's in their deck, how to play around what's in their deck, and going into games two and three. Because game going into game one, you're like, it's it's like I'm gonna play my deck and hope that it works. And then yeah, yeah I'll echo that. Figuring out what your opponent's card counts are kind of sees where they cut for those cards. So for example, uh, if there's like a three or three to five card package that's in the deck that normally isn't there, then you can see. And, you, and you've had a long game one, you can sort of see, okay, what kind of shell do they already have in the deck? And then, for example, seeing one or two tech cards kind of eliminates the possibility of them having other ones. So if my Pulky opponent plays down like an Empoleon or a Scrapper or Big Charm or Cheryl, stuff like that, then I can kind of, okay, there's no Starmie. And so that's sort of where just a general thing to learn is trying to figure out where your opponent's allocating their tech cards, and then using that, you can sort of figure out what they're not playing. And maybe exploit that in the later games. To go off of that, in a difference between game one and two and three, and those tech cards, let's say something like a Starmie. If your opponent doesn't pull it out in game one, does that make you say in games two and three, I can stop playing around it? Or would you still play around something? Because you're like, well, maybe they prized it. Maybe they just didn't have the right cards to play it. Like, how are you deciding whether to play around tech cards if you didn't see it in game one? I, I don't. 
I, I say show it to me. In game one if or I win in games ga- two and three? If I win game one. Okay. If if I win game one, I'm you. They have to show it. If you yeah. if you lose game one, you gotta you gotta, you gotta show it. Let's say, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good advice. My, my general my general like stance when I sit down is like show show it to me and make me respect your deck. Okay, so you're so that sounds like it's simply like I'm not going to play around anything unlikely until yeah. it shows up. Yep. Yeah. Okay. How do you decide? What is unlikely? This is a very abstract question, so I'm gonna stall to give you a little bit of time to think. So, like, um, I think well, go for it. You've you already got. I it. think I think so. Like, what what I do a lot of the time, um, and I think I know like a good number of the other people in the group do as well. Is like look at I I genuinely actually look at online tournaments and like see what decks are doing well because those lists will like those players will show up at tournaments. So those lists are important to some degree. I will look at lists from other tournaments. Um, and see like how that will impact moving forward, uh, other regions, Japan, Korea, whatever. And I'll keep a close eye on like, okay, lists are playing X or they're playing Y. Like there's no playing both. If they're playing both, what are they not going to be playing? Um, like it's just like small mental notes to make, which again is a very big culmination of how much we think about Pokemon on a day-to-day basis. Um, so that's kind of how what I do. And like, like for example, I think like, uh, I wouldn't have played around double Palpad, double Rod, and Arc Intel uh, at NAIC until I saw it. Because that's not something that we saw before, ever. So, Xander, what do you say? Or- Same sort of thing. <laughs> I, I, I don't do nearly as much research, but the general premise of what do I expect in that deck, specifically from what did well the previous regionals, uh, that's sort of what I look for. And then maybe... Like, if anything, just sort of what I would expect the meta to change to. So, against Arkansas, I played around Starmie a little bit cautiously, just because Starmie hits both the Raladon and Blissey after Milwaukee, so I was a little bit wary of it, but also wasn't really, wasn't playing around Starmie all the time. So if I didn't see game one, don't see game, don't, don't play around in game two, but also you kind of have to do the trade-off of how detrimental was playing around it versus not playing around it, and how does that really affect you with uh, your odds of winning the game in either way. That makes sense. So the idea of like, if I play around it, I'm setting myself up to lose. So I kind of have to make these plays to be like, all right, I know they play Roxanne. I don't know they play Starmie. So setting up a board is more important than not in that case. Yes. Okay. To go back to the testing group stuff, uh, Rahul mentioned the idea of looking at online tournaments, things like that. You have some of the best deck builders in the game. Like, like the group has just like a ton of talent, right? How much are you looking at online results and you're like, that's a cool deck. Let's steal some of their ideas versus we know better than everyone else. We're going to stick to our own little bubble and beat the stuff that's out there. So how much do you look at those results and you're like, uh, we might steal a couple things here and there versus we're going to beat all that other jank that people are throwing out right now. Um, I think I, I'll answer this one because Xander doesn't really do as much research um <laughs> but uh, i think for me and i i can speak for like isaiah and like justin and everyone too like we genuinely do not believe that there is like wasted information a lot of the time like even if it's something we look at and we go okay this is just bad we can look at it and move on but we can look at something see if it's good and move on like the prime example is the australians who have said time and time again when uh, uh kaiwin chassis were in finals 
that they got that inspiration from Rage's Dialga deck, the Turbo Dialga deck. Like, if they just wrote it off as bad, that Turbo Palculus never would have existed. Um, we, when we were moving into from Milwaukee to NAIC, uh, Isaiah was very stubborn that Irida was bad. But we, we like caved and we were like, there's so many lists that did well with Irida. There are so many decks that do well with Irida. We have to sit down and try it. And we tried like the only Irida version with one pass, and it was like, eh, like this is very mid. And then we started putting everything together when we started making the cuts we wanted to do. And it was like, okay, this this is way better. Like we have a better idea of like our our flavor added to something that already works by public sentiment. Um, so I think it's a lot of like, why do the extra work when someone has already done it for you? See why something is good. Because I'm under the impression that if something can win a tournament, then it obviously is not a complete fluke. It's probably some form of a fluke, but there is like something that went right for X amount of rounds for this person to win the tournament. So you're calling Arcus on a good deck because it won a tournament. I lost round 10 to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You heard it here first. Play Arcus on at Worlds. I have never lost faster in my life. <laughs> he got me with the Eldegoss game one. The Eldegoss is kind of sick. I cut it immediately, but it's cute. It's very cute. <laughs> so when looking at online events, do you put extra weight into, like as a group, are you like, hey, Shintaro played this list. So yes. maybe it's really good. Okay, so if you see Shintaro versus you see Pikachu Lover 48, you're like, wait, Shintaro's <laughs> is really cool. Pikachu Lover, I think, good job. You did well. But yeah, like even I think like a prime example is like when uh, after EYC, maybe like we were looking at Urshi lists that were doing well and like we would, we would like scrutinize like Nico or like Torward <laughs> or someone for playing like certain cards were like we expect better of you <laughs> <laughs> all right so those names are making a difference and you're like the preparation yes. of like all right i respect these players i'm expecting a lot out of them yeah and if they saw something in putting that like yes i guess online events like is more of a testing ground but if they're testing something it's like maybe we should think about this as well what about and this is still like i guess research based but you know the trainer hill gives all the data of all the mm -hmm. online tournaments do you put any weight into those like, hey, there's a thousand games of Arceus versus Palkia, and it says that Palkia wins 55% of the time. Are you like, yeah, that sounds right? Or are you like, me piloting Palkia wins that match at more than 55% of the time? Like, how much weight do you put into the large sample size of randos versus your own, you know, handful of games? I would put more onto my own handful. I think I trust, like, my results over... I don't know, like like you said, Pikachu over forty eight against Tord, uh, yeah. for example. Like that's, it's it's like a it's a very skewed sample size. But if Pikachu lovers winning that matchup, oh, I'm all in. <laughs> Xander, I think the yeah. the bigger issue is that you don't really it's it's really list dependent, and that's where your matchups tend to be, uh, get all contorted before like a major tournament. For example. Uh, Going back to Dialga, because that's the only deck I actually worked on myself this tournament, or this season, besides like uh, Salt Lake City, is that when you're able to modify the list in these ways, specifically beat certain matchups, those matchups that you see, those large sample sizes, no longer actually matter. But in the same sense, they could become poorer. So they could get better, they could get worse, but there's really a lot of uh, change that you kind of have to account for that you can only account for by playing more games with your own list rather than looking at how results happen with other people's lists. And that just depends how, how much change is actually between your list and the, the general population. Even 
taking apart the uh like the player skill difference so xander you're really like harping on this idea of the 60 matters as opposed to the archetype matters 100 okay so how like what difference does it make then are you looking at a list that's like a significant difference are you like your turbo dialogalus you had the bird keepers you had the rowlet you had the starly all that other stuff are you like this thing is so vastly different every other turbo dialogalist means nothing because uh, my list has all these different answers i will say probably so there's definitely some weight to be carried still but when you're playing your big three matchups a little bit differently than turbo dialga does then like traditional turbo dialga then you just can't really consider those results and then same thing goes for like even a deck that's not as out there like our palkia list with four irida and four pass going into naic is much more favorable against like mew than a regular list that plays four irida and one pass or even some that were crazy and played three irida and one pass where i mean you just can't expect to set up against mew and then your win rate is definitely just going to plummet because of that i guess this kind of gets into the like the deck building and stuff like that but how much thought do you put into those 59th and 60 cards because we've all had those like day before regional you're like do i play the pump kaboo or do i play a fourth marnie and so many times you see people even top eight top four win events and they're like this card was worthless cut it so how much thought are you putting into that 60th card and how much do you think it actually matters a lot i think it matters a lot and you put a lot of thought in like I can I can't speak for myself personally because I go to bed a little bit earlier, but Isaiah and Justin usually stay up till like four or five the morning of the event, figuring out that 59th and 60th. Does that count as staying up? That's just like they just don't sleep. Yes. <laughs> okay. So do, do you say, wake uh, up to an answer then? Do you wake up to I, like I, here's I, your I 60th up. card? Yeah, usually I wake up to an answer, and usually Isaiah or Justin will type out like something very nice to explain it because we will have like four or five options going into that. Like, I go to bed at, like, 2. So, like, they'll send, like, that 4 or 5, and it'll be, like, okay, what are the merits? What are the demerits? Like, where are we looking for... What are we looking for? What matchups? And, like, what overall helps? Like, for example, going into Milwaukee, Horn was our 60th card over Empoleon V. Um, and Horn won us significantly more matchups in a general sense because Empoleon V was for Gigas and Blissey and stuff like that that we were worried about. Empoleon also sucks. Yes. I will, I will happily <laughs> put that on the record. I, the amount of people I had to say, don't play that stupid card. Wait, I bought the secret, the altar. Uh, so. Well, yeah, it's just pretty. That, that just makes sense. Xander, what about you? That 60th card, how much thought are you putting into it? How much does it actually matter? I was going to say it's about four hours worth of time, whereas the other 56, 57 cards are maybe, I don't know, 12 hours worth of time. Like If you were to sit down and take this one deck and say, I'm playing this deck, I'm going to put as much time into it as I can before this tournament. Uh, your first 56 cards, 55 cards even, are a solid, take about half your time, and then the last five take about the other half. Interesting. And you're both on team, like, it is worth that extra time. Those cards will win you more games than not. Yes. Oh, for sure, yeah. Like, if I wasn't playing, if I went to bed five hours earlier, the day before NAIC, I didn't have Rowan in my deck, I didn't have, I don't think I had three Bird Keeper in my deck, no, you had two oh. bird keeper and three of something else. Yeah. I had a I had the big charm in there still, I think. Yeah. So it's just like the small sort of cuts that you make, they give you a couple percentage points, but that really adds up over the course of a tournament where if your percent chance of winning is 2% every single round, 
additional, that's like, this is not the real math, but 18% <laughs> over the course of the day is like the difference between a 6-2-1 and a 5-3-1, or even like a 7-1-1 and a 6-2-1. So uh, it really matters, especially in those matchups that you're trying to target with those changes. So Xander, I have to ask the follow-up question then, because we like to do enough Pokemon history on the podcast as well. What tournament made you feel this way? What tournament did you walk into and you chose the wrong 60th card and you regretted it? Because I know that had to have happened. You've played too many tournaments for that not to. You're shaking your head no. I can't really think of a tournament where like, that was why I changed. It was more so just like a, a desire to get the perfect 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think in the, when I was younger, I didn't appreciate that as much just because it was like, oh, I'll take this deck. I'll run with it. Also, I was younger, I didn't, like, think as much about it, but since getting into Masters, it really became, okay, I've got this deck, how do I want to fine-tune it for the meta? And that's a really different perspective than what's the best deck for the tournament versus how do I make my deck the best? And so, I know that in my first year of Masters, which was arguably my most successful, uh, I really had the mentality of, I'm going to play Gardevoir, because that's my favorite deck, and that's also what I do well with and play. I could play Asleep, and then it was I'll play Espeon Garbodor because I can play that in my sleep and not make a mistake the entire tournament. And then it really just came down to I'm playing a good deck. How can I make those 60 cards as perfect as possible? And that that's what leads to a lot of success, even for people where people can discredit the deck, but they can't really discredit the success. Like, for example, I know me and I, our testing group especially see that, oh, B-Barrel won Salt Lake, and B-Barrel won New Jersey, and B-Barrel won uh, Parker, I forget the tournament. Every single Arceus combination. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, we all hate B-Barrel, but, (laughs) I mean, there's reason why it wins, and there's a reason you can't really discredit the... Going back to results speak for themselves, even if it's something you don't want to accept. This, again, has nothing to do with the testing group part, but since I've got you here, Xander... Do you have any tips? Because I know there's at least one listener, and there's probably way more than one, but any tips for transitioning from seniors to masters? Because like, there's plenty of players who are doing very well in seniors, but then how does that actually transition into a tra- like just an amazing master season? Because your first year as a master was way better than my first season as a master. <laughs> so how do you do it? How do you transition? I would say just don't get in over your head and stick to what you know. Uh, In those first couple tournaments as a master, maybe it was bad luck, but I picked up a deck that I knew other people were playing and that was good, and I did okay. Like, I got points, but I didn't make day two. This was back in the old top 32, so it was a little bit harder, but it was still kind of, like, I wasn't performing very well. And then I would say just playing a deck that you know, because not misplaying is the most important thing on tournament day. And then uh, just having confidence, sort of sticking to a good routine, like sleeping, eating, uh, just putting, setting yourself up for success, basically, and then results will come. That's a very unfortunately generic answer, but uh, there's, that's, no, that's there, there's no secret, is no. there? <laughs> no, Pokemon's the same as any other competitive game, sport. You just got to eat, sleep, and prepare, and don't mess up. Don't not messing up comes from preparing well and not throwing away on like a deck like Italian V Max or something. <laughs> the deck was good, man. Come on, I, I, none of us made day two. No, no not good. <laughs> okay, I should have, but well, you didn't. Sad days. That's true. 
So I want to talk about then actually choosing a deck as a testing group. How far in advance do you know the archetype you're planning on? How far in advance are you like, okay, we're playing Palkia at this tournament, or is this a last minute decision? And then we'll get into the specifics of the deck, but like just the major archetype. How do you actually decide as a group, like, this is what we're going to play and how far in advance you make that decision? Um, so I think there's, ve there's one very polarizing person in the group um, who makes a lot of the shot calls. Uh, we call it the big boss, big money, Isaiah. Um, and so Isaiah will come in saying, I will be playing this deck. I will not be playing this deck. This does change over the course of the week, but it is very polarizing. So we have Isaiah on one end of the spectrum, and I think I'm on the complete other side of the spectrum with how we decide on decks. And then Justin and John are like the middle ground where they kind of are more of a reasonable voice. Um, where like Justin asks the why questions and John asks like, uh, it gives us a little more of like the, um, like what if this happens kind of thing. And so um, usually if we're not super confident in something, we will have like the best decks in our back pocket type of thing. And then we will come in with like different ideas. Like for example, for Indy, I was super convinced that Arc Bees was good. Like I was super, I was like, all on the read. I was like, we just lose to Urshi, we just lose to Urshi, and Isaiah was super on Urshi. And so we'll just grind, grind, grind the matchups to the last minute. And obviously all of us might not be on the same page all the time. It's It's gone that way that a lot of us have been this season um, because the decks that we have been playing have been overwhelmingly very strong. Um, but you, you can see like sometimes like we had an, at EYC some played Urshi, some played Arc Intel, because some believe that Arc Intel was still very good. Um, at NAIC we had a very split group. We had we had our Palkia players, we had Xander playing Dialga, we had Ian... Uh, Reagan and Sam playing the Flying Peak of Beedrill deck. Like, what we we are allowed to have different ideas. It's just we want to refine every single one of those to the ground, so that if someone chooses to play something else, we go with it. But usually, I trust Isaiah and Justin like more than myself sometimes, because I think that if they're going to pick something, they will grind it down to a fine powder. Like they are the two who will stay up like every single night, making sure it's good. And at some point, you have to understand that like I trust myself as a player, but I also trust in them to lead me in a proper direction. Xander, any other thoughts? You're the one who played Dialga, so... <laughs> That's true. <laughs> what? Why? I will say, uh, it, it just really depends on the tournament. So I think for EUIC and NAIC, everyone kind of knew, besides I wasn't there, but for EUIC, everyone's going to play, everyone knew they were playing Urshi. They've been putting in games forever. Everyone was on Urshi, and if they didn't want to play Urshi, they would fall back to Arkantel. And then NAIC... Uh, we all knew that our Palkia list from Milwaukee was pretty strong. It just needed refinement. And then I feel like everyone knew they were playing Palkia. Besides Ian, who showed up with Arceus Picabedril and then said he's playing this 100%. And he convinced Reagan and Sam to play it too. So I will say for ICs, it's probably like I would say by the beginning of Thursday or early Thursday, you kind of, we kind of knew individually who was playing what. And then it really came down to like the refinement. But then that was because we tested all day Wednesday and we had Thursday to refine altogether. Whereas for regionals, we're showing up Friday. And I didn't even lock in archetype for a couple of those decks until like 11 p.m. And so it was picking up good lists or making those one or two final changes, but it wasn't decided like as a group what everyone was playing or uh, what I was going to play or what who or anyone specifically was going to play either. So the other part is not just the archetype, but the 60 cards. How, and I, so I prefaced the beginning of the podcast with, I've never same 60 with anyone. And part of the reason for that is even my testing partners, I've never like pushed them. I'm like, I'm playing this. And then I never like try and convince them to do it. 
how do you actually convince people or how do you get convinced if you're not the convincer how do you get convinced to play the same 60 as someone else flaming them a lot of yelling (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of yelling (laughs) uh it's not it's not peaceful it's um like it is very chaotic uh there have been times where, like, I have to go on a walk, John has to go on a walk, like, we just need to clear the air a little bit, like, we need to just, like, break. Because, like, we all have such strong opinions that it's very difficult to, like, come down to that consensus. But we all agree that, like, we're all trying to win the event mutually. So it's just, like, getting our point across. Like, it wasn't as easy as Salt like where it was, like, first time working together, like, I, I was like, I want Goon. And, like, someone was like, I want Choice Belt. And, like, Xander was like, we have to play Bavero. And I was like, fuck it, we'll just put all these cards in one deck and call it a day. Um, like, getting down to like that fine it's okay i will say we have a couple of very level-headed people which really helps like without justin i think we'd be way off the rails <laughs> um, but having justin has been very nice because like we do get into like yelling matches a lot uh, there's a lot of like back and forth um it's never like personal we never it's never gets to a personal level because like um as soon as that happens it's like someone needs to take a break because we're going past the scope of the game um and it happens once in a while but it's just like I take a step back, uh, reevaluate, take a walk, come back. But um, tensions are high. We all want to win. And then there's a lot of yelling and a lot of just like, at the end of the day, it's like putting faith in each other to, uh, that our work actually paid off to the point we did. I will, uh, I will caveat this by when we say yelling, it's not like yelling, screaming. It's more <laughs> so just like going back to the same point. Yeah. 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 Like, <laughs> Like, how can you not see that X is better than Y? Like, sort of, just going back to the same thing over and over again, like, not... Yeah, like, it's never, like Rahul said, it's never personal. It's never, like, unproductive. Uh, It's just repetitive and also uh, just a lot of explaining on both sides of logic and stuff like that. So then how does it actually get to the 60? Is there eventual, like, through all of this... Some people compromise, all that other stuff, and it just kind of... Does it just suddenly align seemingly out of nowhere, or does it very slowly get to it? I'd say that at those... at the After maybe, like, a couple, like, five, ten minutes of going back and forth on something, it's like, all right, let's sit down and play two games and see why we want to make this change for that specific matchup or not. Um, And then it'll be like a a roundtable discussion type of deal where it's like (laughs) two people are playing, and it's like the circus uh, and so we can all evaluate because like at that point in the night when it's getting that heated it's like we're at the very end of the night so like <laughs> everything else that we need to discuss has been discussed and then sometimes i think uh, indie might have been the only tournament where we ended on different counts of the same deck like rahul me and someone else played quick shooting yep. and then john and isaiah played manaphy which was okay such a bad I wa- choice i wanted to also actually, be known that yeah. that morning isaiah was like i don't want to play big charm and i was like you cannot not you cannot play RCs that big charm and we like were arguing over message until like literally the final seconds where decklist were submitted i was set on my 60 like i was not budging i was like my 60 is set i have been playing for this with like with this for the past week i am very comfortable did please tell me he played big charm right he did okay they played manaphy we played we played quick shooting okay i was gonna say and and then then isaiah keeps saying like Manaphy made two finals because Reagan also played Manaphy. And then the joke is that Manaphy was completely useless for them. Whereas Quick Shooting won me like two individual sets because uh, I like, hit them twice. Yes, I played, I think me and Rahul all said that like Quick Shooting won us 
like a couple sets, and then Isaiah was just not comprehending how quick shooting could ever be useful in any single game ever. I forgot to use quick shooting like 20 times in all of Salt Lake. I hate that card with a passion just because of that. <laughs> just quick aside. But anyway, okay. So you've decided on the deck, you've decided on the list, all that other stuff. How do you like... I'm trying to think of like during the tournament. Are you constantly like meeting up with each other, gassing each other up, still discussing the deck, still discussing matchups? Or are you completely off the like... I'm not talking Pokemon with these people. We're like, we're just going to chat and hang out. Like how's the actual tournament look with everyone? Like, this is just your own kind of thing, right? Do you want to talk about Pokemon the entire tournament? Or are you just like, bro, let's just vibe out to music right now. Like, where are we at? <clears throat> so Isaiah leads us off with a prior, a prayer circle every tournament. Um, which is like, it, it's just been like a wholesome tradition. So we continue it. Um, it's just, it's just cute. We do it. No, that's then, great. <laughs> First couple rounds, we're kind of doing our own thing. We'll have our group chat. I think the first couple rounds, everyone's gathering their own bearings. Um, I think we rarely find each other in the first couple rounds uh, until lunch, usually, just because everyone's, like, trying to get their head in the game, trying to get the zone moving. We'll have, like, our chat where we just, like, send records, uh, what's happening. Um, and then, like, as we go deeper into the tournament, it'll be a constant, like, as soon as my round is done, where are the boys? Like, I literally start, like, walking as quickly as possible, like, everyone's game, seeing how they're doing. And then, like, Heading into matchups, like we have, prob if we're all at the top tables. We have probably hit these people, and so like I'm running over. Like if I see Isaiah's matchup, I run over to him, try to explain to him what's in their deck. Isaiah will run over to me, try to explain what's in the deck. Like we will, like it will be like by the later rounds, it's full go only Pokemon, nothing else in our head. Xander, agree? Yep, same okay. thing. That's that's actually really interesting. I'm so, I like it makes complete sense, but it's like the value of the testing group doesn't just go to the sixty. The value of the testing group continues into the yeah. finals, I assume. Yeah, like uh, when Isaiah, um, for example, even made top eight against Gustavo, and as soon as he knew as Gustavo, um, instantly he pulls up the stream. I'm starting to message people that Gustavo has played against, asking what their counts are. For example, Justin and him are trying to figure out the sixty, um, all that kind of stuff. Like just like it's very quick. Like, you need to get your head in the game as quickly as possible, like, because it's a matter of inches at that point. Do you have a member of the group who is, like, very good at rewatching a VOD and getting a 60? Or is this, like, a group Isaiah. effort? Isaiah. Isaiah? Yeah. He, he, what he will do between day one and day two is sometimes stay up to, like, ungodly hours still <laughs> um, to put streams on point two five and get, like, a list that we're, we're worried about. Like, for example, at UIC, we got Frank, Frank Gustavo's... Um, and I think it was towards, and all three of them top eighted, and Frank Gustavo were finals. So I think we put the groundwork in. See, this is why you need a member of your group who's like what seventeen or eighteen. Yes, because <laughs> they can stay up all night. He's a machine. I swear. I can't. I can't even imagine. I'm in bed by like usually eleven because my flight comes in late, and I'm like, bro, I woke up too early. I hate this. <laughs> I tried doing it for a couple tournaments and I realized that like it is destroying me as a human being because I'm old now. <laughs> so uh, I have like a set bedtime of two o'clock and then I need like six hours at least or like five and a half is fine. Xander, you're smiling right now, but give it a few years and you're going to be right there. <laughs> no, I'm laughing because my bedtime is like one, one thirty. <laughs> yeah, it's, it. uh, it's like it's like I think I am usually the last to fall. That is not Isaiah and Justin. OK, John even goes up earlier. Because <laughs> everyone has like a different like morning routine, for example. Like yeah. Isaiah like is like drag him out of bed like seconds before we leave kind of thing. <laughs> um 
Justin will shower at night. Like those guys will shower at night and take care of that stuff. But, like I need to get up, get a good shower in, like you know, mentally get into it. So, prime team shower in the morning. Like I'm, yeah. I, I don't do it before work normally, but before a Pokemon tournament, heck yeah, I yeah, I got to wake right up. up. Yep, yeah. I also, I got to be sure that I'm not smelling. Like that's yeah, <laughs> that's too important. <laughs> I don't want to be that yeah, I mean, the, player. The Airbnb we had in Columbus didn't uh, have very good air conditioning, so uh, we all like swept through our night. <laughs> um so it was like very nice to have a shower in the morning so into the actual games we kind of like skipped over this part but that's that's my yeah. bad so you're playing games like let's say so you have your heated argument you're doing your two games you have everyone watching is this open hand seven people are playing each turn for each of the two decks are you watching two people play and you're talking about their plays kind of behind their back like where's that kind of in between like it's going to take a village to play the game versus let's just critique them because, you know, it's an individual game and the tournament's in like four hours. Yeah. It's like open-handed and like that one game, like you could literally, we literally just play one game, but that one game could take like an hour just because we're like talking about every single line, every single turn about exactly where things could go and where things should go. And it'd be like, at some point we were just was like, if you had this and this happened, then this would end. But because this was discarded on this particular turn, rewind it back like eight turns, then this is what would happen. Or like, take this out of your prize cards because the game would have ended on the spot here. Let's continue playing. Or like, take this out of your, like, get this out of your deck right now because if you didn't have this, the game ends anyway. Like. We can tell from this point like the, how the game would play out. So we're trying to simulate that very tight scenario where this tech card is applicable, um, if that's the situation. Do you ever put up a situation where you're like, let's set up the board state in this specific way and figure out how to get out of it? Or are you playing the game and you're kind of manipulating the way that it goes to set up these difficult situations? I think latter. Uh, the former usually only applies with like opening hands, like numbers, like turn one, turn two stuff. Mm -hmm. Like... Uh, EOIC, for example, uh, I keep going back to the one because that's the one where like we put a lot of like work in that Urshi list. Um, we were trying to determine if Galarian Moltres V was worth it because we were trying to get the turn two Raihan playoff against Mew. And I think we played like 20 test hands and we pulled it off twice. And we were just like, nope, not worth it. You're telling me 10%'s not enough? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not against our coin flip matchup. So can you give like a quick little argument for and this is important because I'm going to have to play this for people at locals for why play testing should be done with this like open hand collaborative nature versus playing the game with each other. And then afterwards talking about misplays and stuff like that. Um, I think if you make the, if you talk about it after there's some lines you won't catch immediately. And like some, at some point, like the flow of the game will be forgotten no matter how good you are at memory, unless you have like a photographic memory or whatever. Um, so like even when we play on Discord, like our our general testing is Discord. It'll be like there'll be one, maybe two games going at the same time. Usually it's one, and then everyone else will be watching. And like for example, last night I was doing some work, and I would unmute to say like, "Hey John, why didn't you make X play or Y play?" And like the person he's playing against is also in the call, and they will like join the call and be like, "Okay, yeah, I think you should have done this given this knowledge and that." And it's just like so important because you learn so much in those first couple turns that it's like you walk through the logic right then and there. You're not on a timer, like. We're serving to better each other. It's not like me being like, haha, gotcha is going to help us in any <laughs> regard going into the tournament. Like, obviously, in the tournament, it's like, I'm not going to like tell my opponent, like, hey, man, you could have done this. Like, that's not what you're supposed to do. That's kind of disrespectful, actually. Um, but like, in a testing scenario, it's like, we want to talk about every line because, especially with Intellion engines, there's so much going on that it's really hard to rewind 
if you do it after the game. Maybe with like a Barbaral engine or maybe with like a more straightforward deck, you can rewind it a couple turns and talk about it. But with Italian engines, it's like so much is going on uh, every single turn. So uh, like one shady dealings could change the scope of the entire game type of thing. Xander, do you have any other thoughts on that? Or just another just echo what Rahul said? I would say there's a lot of merit to doing completely open, like on Discord, especially early testings of a deck. But I think that later on, uh, even like the day before the tournament, maybe early Friday, when we're not trying to refine that 60th card, but just test a matchup in general, um, it's nice to do like a two-on-two, where you do have somebody to sanity check you, but I'm not directly having my hand laid out on the table. And that way you can kind of just definitely ignore any bias of seeing your opponent's hand. Uh, So I would say definitely both, where for this collaborative testing, you don't want to just one-on-one uh, with no spectators on either side if you can't help it, or maybe like if it's me and somebody versus Isaiah, because Isaiah's played 20 times more games than I have, but at the end of the day, uh, I do think there's merit to having the closed hand and also the open hand too, depending on sort of what you're trying to accomplish. To go off of that, like, so let some of the people listening to this are going to be either newer players or they're just going to say, I'm less skilled than Xander. How much should they be testing closed hand? to simulate that, how do I do this on my own, versus they should actually be collaborating because they actively need all of that extra help. Because both of you could probably take a deck you've never played solo and top cut a regional with it, right? Like, you have that skill of playing for years and years. Most of us can't do that. So how many games do you think, like, those lesser skilled players, lesser experienced players should have with their own, this is all on me, this is only my brain? If that made sense, Andrew. I would say, I don't know, close to 50-50. Sort of where, even in those open hand games, it's not like you're being coached through everything. Especially when you're playing in person, you can make decisions and then rewind them because you're playing in person like the day before the tournament. Uh, Online, obviously you can't really do that. So it's definitely a little bit more, I'm going to play XYZ. Okay, no, don't do that sort of like response. And then... Obviously, the more experienced you are as a player in general, some things are more autopilot, and you're really only discussing a couple things, but I think that everyone can stand for some coaching, even me or Rahul, especially when we're just picking up an archetype that uh, other people have put more time into. I know that with my first games of Palkia or Mew or Dialga or whatever else, there's also there's a lot of things to learn, especially those little in- intricacies that are matchup to matchup rather than just your game strategy when you sit down. You said the C word, so I do have to throw it out there. Because I get this DM at least once a week, if not more often, for coaching. I don't offer it. I ain't got that kind of time. Do either of you offer coaching? We both do, in fact, uh, offer coaching. You can find us at metify.gg. <clears throat> Xander has been getting a couple of clients because he's become the Dialga god. The Dialga guy, now. Yeah, he's a Dialga guy. Um, and yeah, my coaching is available as well. I do most weeknights, uh, like post-working hours, like before gym hours kind of thing. Can either of you sell the audience on coaching? Like, may not even just you necessarily, but why is it beneficial? Why is it something? Because I feel like it fits in with the testing groups talk, right? Yep. Why is coaching beneficial? What are some of the things you're going to get from it that you wouldn't get from playing on PTCGO? Or maybe, maybe you play an open hand game with someone who is also inexperienced. Why would you hire a coach? Why is that helpful? 
Um, there's a lot of things that you don't see as a player, like down the line, like when you're an inexperienced player coming into the game, a lot of like forethought or like planning ahead is something that is a skill that is not necessarily, um, you, you have that off the bat, unless you come from another card game, potentially, um, just knowing how, like, if I do X, then like turn like seven, this should happen. Or like how my like game plan, game plan to win the game is, um, resource management's another huge one. So these kinds of things I think are the biggest thing that I've noticed with a lot of my new coaching clients, because I have a lot of clients who are newer players to the game and so learning those small nuances can take a tie into a win a loss into a tie like um just improve your matchup percentage a couple points because a lot of the time you'll make a, a poor play and chalk it off two or three turns later as being unlucky because you burned a certain resource you didn't have to burn or making a certain play you didn't have to do um and it's just like having someone to tell you that is uh statistically like better than you or whatever is again reassuring it's like we, we're hu basically humans need reassurance and so having someone to tell you you are doing the correct play or this is what you can do better can go a long way for your own confidence because you don't know if you're doing the correct preparation a lot of the time xander what are some things that you've noticed that you think this is why coaching is beneficial for players so i'd say just besides the question to start off the bat the best athletes have coaches and so I guess it doesn't translate super well to Pokemon, but even though the best coaches don't have coaches, they play with everybody. So like, even though I don't get coached by somebody or Rahul doesn't get coached by somebody, Rahul and I sit down and with Isaiah, John, whatever, and we're playing these open hand games. And in some sense, Isaiah is our coach because he plays a lot more than we do. Yep. So uh, everyone can deserve to get coached. Uh, in terms of specific skills, I will say knowing when there are exceptions to rules is really important, where some things are autopilot 90% of the time, but those 10% of the time where you want to do something differently really matters. Uh, sequencing is sort of one example of that, but I will say gameplay decisions also, where, where you can sort of skirt out your win condition, how you can sort of make, how you can exploit your opponent. So uh, for example, if your opponent discards a couple boss on turn one or is down their Marnies or Paths or just like little things that normally don't happen, but then knowing how to capitalize on them are really important. And that sort of comes from like Rahul saying that forethought of just seeing how these consequences could play out over the course of the game. And even though they might only matter in 5% of games, if you take a 50-50 into a 55-45, you're super set for doing well at a tournament rather than just taking that 50-50. And then to give a quick little, uh, someone who is not going to benefit monetarily from selling coaching at all. I got coaching when I first started. I started in 2018, right? I was still a newer player compared to both of these two. And hiring a coach was the best decision because if you're someone who has not a ton of free time, that hour, hour and a half coaching session is way better than 15 hours of playing yeah. on your own. And then not only that, the 10 hours, 15 hours you play after that hour coaching session are way better because there's a ton of stuff you didn't even think about, things you didn't even know yep. you didn't know. So I am a big, big fan of coaching. Highly recommend it. Both of these two are great. I would recommend them as well. One last question. If someone's listening to this, to go back to the testing group stuff, if someone's listening to this and they're like, I am the best player in my testing group, what are some words of advice that you have for them to potentially carry the group? Maybe they're not like 
they're not your level of player, right? But they're like, the rest of my group is kind of trailing behind me. <laughs> like, what are some tips that you have for someone who may not consider themselves a top player, but they're also someone who feels like they have to carry the rest of the group with them? And that might be a hard one. I think at the very least, you need to have like one person who can match your effort. Uh, if you have no people who can match your effort, I think it's going to be poor just because, um, like, not like completely match your effort, but like if it's like, hey, I need someone to play games with me tonight, like, someone's got to be there. Um, it can't be like every night you're being ghosted or like every session you're uh, not there. At that point, it's going to just become a lot of take and not as much give. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, you have to kind of understand the scope of where your players are in your group and kind of work with their strengths and benefits. Like, or like weaknesses, sorry. Like, like uh, at a couple tournaments, like Isaiah never says, like, I think Isaiah is the strongest player in our group by far. Um, I think Isaiah never says, like, don't play this deck unless it's really, really bad. He will actively try to help us with ideas. Like he was talking to Xander about Dialga while we were playing Palkia games. He was talking to Ian about the Pika deck while we were playing like Palkia games. Like, it's not like you can be completely self-centered if you choose to take that carry role but obviously understand your boundaries uh, because your tournament also matters. Thoughts, Sander? Uh, hard question. I would say sort of similar where if you're trying to put in a lot of effort into the testing group and no one's really reciprocating, then uh, it might be time to either introduce someone new to the testing group or uh, find a new testing group just so you have just someone able to sort of put in that commitment as well. Uh, in terms of if you are the best person in your group and you're trying to excel your group, um, I will say probably the best thing to do is just test out those wacky ideas or those deckless things, or uh, at the very least, just try and get some engagement even outside of playing games. So talking through ideas is something that's super easy, feels pretty natural, just general conversation of, oh, how can we like make this matchup better? Or I have this idea, talk through it with me. And those are some ways to sort of garner interest as well to try and helpfully get people more motivated or involved. And then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So I will say there's no surefire solution to getting people to sort of rise to the occasion, but uh, there are some ways you can sort of uh, poke them a bit to do so. Thank you both so much. Rahul, if the people want to find more of you, where can they find you? Um, the easiest place to find me is Twitter. Thank you for having me first and foremost. Twitter is the flea, T-H-E-F-L, and then there are four E's. I post a lot of, uh, whatever. Honestly, just post <laughs> on Twitter. It's like, it's like I wake up and I'm like, you know what? This morning spaghetti feels good. And everyone's like, what's wrong with you? Um, and then YouTube is just my name, Rahul Reddy. That's usually where I post a lot of my videos. Um, I try to keep things competitive as much as possible. Uh, and short. So if you guys want like short videos, um, just hop on over there. Eight, ten minutes, like a meal digest kind of thing. You'll get your competitive dose of however often I post. Short's an interesting one because this podcast is known to run very long, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of people who love the short content as well. <laughs> Xander, where can the people find you? Uh, like Rahul, definitely a Twitter guy. Uh, you can find me at Xander Perot, just my name, no space, no underscore, no anything, uh, with an X. And so I'll post on there, just mostly Pokemon stuff, but sometimes college takes, so expect mostly Pokemon though. And then I do write articles for Channel Fireball as well as Pokemon.com occasionally, so be sure to check me out there. Uh, stuff usually comes out once a month on Channel Fireball and then whatever on Pokemon. And uh, besides that, I also offer coaching on Medify, like Rahul, 
And you can probably find that in both of our Twitter bios as well. And I will have links to both of their Twitters, as well as I'll try and find the links for their Metafies for the description of their YouTube box or on whatever podcast app you're on. Myself, of course, Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube at Mellow underscore Magikarp. This has been another episode of the Lake of Rage podcast. Catch you all next week.